I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to First um, Peter chapter three. In my exposition through First Peter, we've come to verse eighteen, and this morning we're going to just go through verse eighteen. We're not going to go and pick up any other verses. Just one verse. Two reasons really why we're looking at the one verse. Uh, first of all, it's because it's incredibly rich. And it's worthy of a single message this morning. I want to take our time unpacking the incredible truths contained here in this verse, one phrase by, by phrase at a time, verse phrase by phrase. Second of all, there's another reason why we're going to look at this verse. Verses 19 through 22 are incredibly complex and difficult. And um, I, I felt like in the course of a message, we spend all our time on 318 gleaning the jewels. We won't give 19 through 22 the justice that it deserves. We'll look upon that next week. If you want to be puzzled and um, figure out, be confused, go ahead and read verses 19 through 22. It will confuse you. And I'm um, looking forward to helping you next week. But that's not this week. This week we are just chapter 3, verse 18. It's all about the cross of Christ. As appropriate, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper after my exposition today. Just to reflect once upon, respond to the cross. um, Just in in, uh, taking the bread and drinking the cup in worship of the Lord. Let's read 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that You would um, take these words and uh, take my explaining of them, exposing of their meaning, and cause them to sink deep into our hearts. I know for all of us here who trust Christ, these these are precious words and these are joyful words that just reinforce everything we've sung about everything that we know, everything that we believe, that Christ Jesus died for us. And in that, Lord, we can rejoice. And so I pray that You would take these words, dig them into our hearts. God, convict of sin where necessary. Give, um, Cause confession of sin where necessary. Um, cause rejoicing once again uh, where needed. Give us a joy in You because of what Christ has accomplished for us. May we never tire to think of these things and reflect upon them because they are our life-changing words. And I pray that they would help us this morning. pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, corporations are often known by their symbols. The swoosh stripe is Nike. The peacock is... NBC. I know my kids see the golden arches from long ways, miles away, I think. And uh, they know that a McDonald's is up ahead. The blimp is known as Goodyear's blimp. Cowboy hat is what advertises for Arby. It's a, it's, it's a symbol. There's a power in a uniting symbol, but for American free enterprise, isn't the only portion of our society that has figured this out. Throughout all time, there's been power in symbols. Secular ideologies have, have embraced symbols. Marxism embraced the sickle and hammer. The Nazis of Germany of a previous generation or two embraced the swastika as that symbol which united them. 
Gangs have their symbols. They spray paint them on walls. So this is our turf. This is our territory. Clubs have symbols. Different pictures, different displays that unite them. Cities have their symbols. When you think of the Eiffel Tower, what do you think of? Paris. You think about the Space Needle, what do you think of? Seattle. Right? Sydney Opera House, what do you think of? Sydney. But you can see the, the Opera House, the big loops of that, and you say, oh, that's Sydney, Australia. Even Rockford has its symbol. Down by the waterfront, that red thing, whatever that thing is. <laughs> Every world religion has had their symbols. Judaism has had the Star of David, the, the two equilateral triangles that are interposed on top of one another. Islam, symbolized by a crescent moon. Buddhism has the yin-yang symbol. And Christianity is no exception to this. Christianity has its symbol as well. Symbol is a cross, a vertical line by a smaller horizontal line. The universal symbol of Christianity. It's seen on the top of steeples and churches. Cross is often displayed the center of a sanctuary of many churches. It's on the front of Bibles. Crosses are all over the place, and rightly so. Other symbols could have been used to represent Christianity. Could have been a, a little manger symbol. You know, a couple cross and then kind of this thing and maybe some star. That, that would have represented Christianity in some sense of the incarnation, God coming to be among us. Or maybe uh, the empty tomb could have been a symbol of Christianity. I draw some rock and then a, a little tomb and kind of uh, you come out of there. That could have been the symbol of Christianity. But it's no accident the one symbol that is taking its stand for the symbol of Christianity is the cross. There is no better symbol that defines our faith than the cross. The cross is the center of our religion. I mean, think about it. We, we gather this morning because of the cross. We look back at that event that happened 2,000 years ago and realize that that cross stands as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It will never be repeated. It doesn't have to be repeated because it was perfect. At the cross is where we experience forgiveness of our sins. We see the perfect life of Christ as our substitute. Him dying for us. Where He was redeeming us. Turning the wrath of God away from us. Justifying us in His sight. Reconciling us to God. Through the cross where we're given access to God. The cross is where we're given eternal life. The cross is our hope. It's no wonder that Paul would say, it may never be that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look to the way we live, the cross ought to be central there as well. It reminds us of mercy. We've been forgiven much at the cross, so we should be forgiving and merciful to others. I was listening on the radio to Bob Bixby preaches pastor at Morningstar Baptist Church. He said a statement just right on. He said, righteous people are merciful people. That's just who we are. Because why? Because the cross and everything it represents. Also, we look to the cross, we think about the life of self-sacrifice that Jesus put on display for us. We say that's the model of how we ought to live. Many people have called it the Calvary Road. It's the life of forsaking all that we have. To give all that we are to other people and to the Lord. Jesus tells us, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
We see what Christ did. He took up His cross. And we're to take up our cross too and follow Him. Well, that's Peter's perspective as well. The cross is everything to Him. So he says here in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, these words, Peter's describing for us what took place on the cross. It's remarkable, really, when you look at it, of how much is said in so few words. The main point of verse 18 is simply this, is that Christ died. That's a simple sentence. You learn this in grade school, hopefully. If you haven't learned it in grade school, maybe you need to learn it. You diagram sentences, and the idea is to get the main simple subject and the simple verb, and then everything else modifies it. And the simple subject here is Christ. The simple verb here is died. Christ died. Everything else tells us why He died. Now, your version might say something different. Darren, did I catch you looking at something different? Maybe not. Um, It says, some versions say, Christ suffered for you. How many of you have Christ suffered for you? Right? How many of Christ died? About 50-50, probably. The uh, New King James Version, the ESV, says that Christ suffered. The NAS, the NIV, says that Christ died. Now, we just simply don't know what Paul wrote. He may have written suffered, may have written died. The copies of the manuscripts that we have, they have come down to us. Some say suffered, some say died. But you think about it. When people say there's errors in the Bible, that's the kind of errors they're talking about. We just don't know which Paul, Paul wrote one of them. We don't know what. But really, in the end, it doesn't really matter much because when he says that Christ suffered for us, he's referring to the suffering of his death, right? So you think about his death, it's the same idea. So any difference between these translations is marginal at best. So getting back to the main point here, main point is that Christ died. He suffered and died. The text then, Peter gives six purposes for his death. These six points are going to be the base of my outline. I know adults, on your notes, you only have five spaces. You just have to leave room for a six. Put six there, four blank. You can fill that in. First, we see that Christ died for an example. He died for an example. I get this from this little word here, also. Christ also died. Christ also suffered. The idea here is that Christ did something that we are being called to do. He did something as well. And what it is from last week's message, you can see there in verse 17, is that we are called to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And so also in the same way, Christ also suffered for doing what is right rather than doing for what is wrong. And verse 18 then forms the basis and the reason why it's better to suffer for doing what's right rather than doing what's wrong because Christ was our example in doing that very thing. You think about Jesus. There's no earthly reason why He should have died as a criminal on the cross. It's like zero. I mean, the reason why people are crucified is because they committed crimes. And Jesus committed no crime. There's no reason why He should have been upon the cross. In fact, even think about it. Remember when Jesus was crucified? He was there upon the cross and there was a a criminal on this side and there was a criminal on this side and the one on this side was, hey, if you really are the Son of God, come down from that cross and save yourself and save us. Kind of deriding him. <laughs> you really say you're the Christ. And that's exactly what the people in the front row were saying. Right? If you're really the Christ, come down. <clears throat> but the other thief, 
though he had hurled the same abuses before, said, why do you do this? Let, let me get these words exactly what he says. He says, do you not fear God? You are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly for what for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He says, we're suffering justly. We're criminals. We deserve to die. But this one is suffering unjustly. In other words, verse 17, he went about doing good, his good behavior, and yet he was being slandered. He was suffering for doing what is good. I love the way the hymn writer tells the story of the life of Christ. He says, My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He talked about the people. Sometimes they crowd His way and His sweet praises sing. Resounding all the day, hosannas to their King. So sometimes they they worship Christ. Then crucify is all their breath. And for His death they thirst and cry. Here it is. Why? What has my Lord done to cause this rage and spite? He made the lame to run and gave the blind their sight. What injuries! These are why the Lord Most High so cruelly dies. The crimes of Christ were making the lame to run and giving sight to the blind. It's the life of Christ. He lived a righteous life and yet He suffered incredibly for it. That's Peter's point. Jesus has become our example of one who has suffered for the sake of righteousness. And that's Peter's message throughout the whole book. See, it's not that God calls us to suffer for the sake of righteousness while He Himself sits in heaven on His heavenly rocking chair knowing nothing of suffering. It's not. Jesus suffered for doing what was good. In fact, the clearest place you see the example of Christ is 1 Peter 2.21. He had just gotten off in verses 18-20 through about how servants, be submissive to your masters even if even if they are unreasonable. Because you don't have any credit if when you sin you suffer, but if when you do what is right and suffer, this finds favor with God. Why? Because, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose. This is a call of Christians is to walk righteously and then face suffering because Christ also suffered for you. Here it is. Leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. The example of Christ in suffering is the example that you ought to have in your suffering. Who it says in verse 22, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Right? He walked righteously. When reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. That's how you ought to suffer. When being reviled, don't revile in return. While suffering, utter no threats back. But do what Christ did at the end there, verse 23. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what we're called to do. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Don't return insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. Walk righteously. Rock purely. Turn away from evil and do good. In so doing, it may just be that according to the will of God, you'll suffer for it in such times. Look to Christ. He was the example. 
It says in chapter 2, verse 23, He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously, and that is our example to follow as well. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall do exactly what Jesus did. They shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's what Christ did. That's what we're called to do. He is our example in His suffering and death. Second point. Jesus suffered and died once for all time. For all time. You can see that there in the next phrase. We're just going to pick this apart phrase by phrase, word by word. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Now, the sense here isn't that He died once for everybody. Okay, The sense here is that He died once for all time. It was once that Christ died. It's not that He died once and is going to have to die again and have to suffer again and have to suffer again. No, it's a once that He suffered and died. The sacrifice of Christ is never to be repeated. Now, you think about that in contrast to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. When God prescribed those, He prescribed them with the intent that they would be repeated again and again and again and again every morning. According to Exodus 29, verse 39, there's to be a sacrifice of a lamb. Priests get up in the morning, sacrifice their lambs. The first order of business they do. They work all day. At the end of the night, last order of business, same verse, says sacrifice a lamb in the evening. Every morning, every night, a lamb goes down, a sacrifice. Every year on the Day of Atonement, there was to be a sacrifice of a lamb for the sins of the people. It was a special lamb, the Day of Atonement, to atone for all the sins of the people. The high priest would take that lamb, the blood of the lamb, into the mercy seat, into the second, into the, beyond the second veil, into the Holy of Holies. Every year that sacrifice came down. Other sacrifices in the law. And these are only a few. Whenever a child was born in a home, the mother was unclean until she brought a sacrifice to the priest was cleansed by the sacrifice. Every firstborn out of the womb had to be cleansed with blood. A sacrifice was required. Remember when Mary and Joseph had Jesus, they brought Him up to the temple to offer the sacrifice. Two turtle doves, two pigeons, according to the law. That's what it says there in Luke 2. Every year, the men of Israel were commanded to come to appear in the presence of the Lord three times at Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booze. At each of these national celebrations, there were sacrifices there offered. In fact, particularly at the time of Passover, perhaps Jerusalem, normally a town, I'm, I'm wrong on my estimates, but it was a town, maybe 50,000 people at the time of Christ, maybe 30,000, something like that. But in the time of the Passover, historians say it was swelled to a million. And every family bringing a lamb. We have hundreds of thousands of lambs being slaughtered. And so much was the carnage that... Uh, the, the streets in Jerusalem trinkled with blood of all the slain animals. Every year that happened at Passover. In addition to these sacrifices, there were sacrifices to be offered each time a member of the Israelite community sinned. You can read about that. Leviticus chapter 1 through 5 talks about when someone sins, you come. When someone sins intentionally, this is the kind of sacrifice you bring. When they sin unintentionally, the sacrifices were repeated again and again and again and again. And that was by design. But the sacrifice of Christ was different than those sacrifices. His sacrifice took place once in history, never to be repeated. The sacrifice of Christ took place once for all time. The writer of the Hebrews pounds his home again and again and again. Listen to Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. 
says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy and shadow of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So in other words, when Christ came, He entered not the earthly holy of holies, He entered the heavenly holy of holies. It says, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Talking about the Day of Atonement. It's not that Christ is supposed to come back every year, every year often. Otherwise, it says, Hebrews 9.26, he'd have to need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But he doesn't have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Because the writer says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. Once He came. Once He entered the holy place with one sacrifice, never needing to suffer again. There it is. Later in the book, we read Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But He, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies He made a footstool for His feet. And then in verse 14 it says, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. All that theology is behind Peter's simple mentioning here of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. The fact that these Old Testament sacrifices were offered again and again and again and again demonstrates they weren't good enough. But on the other hand, the sacrifice of Christ was good enough. It was perfect. In fact, because it was perfect, it never needed to be repeated See, because when you reach perfection, there's no need to do it again. Let me give you an illustration which certainly will fail in many ways, but hopefully will help to get the point across. Suppose you're working as a carpenter. I did that one summer. I quickly decided I didn't want to be a carpenter. And uh, you're putting your studs together. You put your walls down there and you know, you're, you're throwing your stud in and, and then you put your wall up and you line it up and... Uh, you might find out, you know what, we made a mistake. It's too long. It's not going to fit. Or it's too short. It doesn't fit well enough. Or there's this plumbing fixture down here that we've got to like cut a hole. We forgot to account for that. So down comes the wall and you, you make your changes and put it up. Maybe, maybe you've got to change it again. Finally, once you put it up, once you put it in place, the wall is there and it's perfect. If it's perfect, you're not going to take that wall down again, right? You're going to leave it up as long as it remains perfect. But as it sits there for a while and maybe some of the, the weight of the house comes upon it, some of those uh, studs sometimes twist and maybe you got to take a stud out and fix it. You put the drywall on, looks wonderful until kids come along with balls and sharp objects and then maybe they gouge a hole in that. So you gotta, you got to fix the wall. Or maybe you say, you know what, a window here would look really good. So you got to fix the wall and put a big window in there. But as long as the wall remains perfect, you have to change it. But as soon as something imperfect comes about, you need to... Change it. But the sacrifice of Christ was perfect and it never becomes imperfect. It always has saving power. It never becomes defective over time. It's as powerful to save today as it was 2,000 years ago. It never needs to be repeated. It was once for all time. Third point. Christ suffered and died for sins. Now, at this point you might say, Steve, I think that's pretty obvious. I've already mentioned that on a few occasions, but listen, Peter explicitly mentions it. So let's bring it out. Christ also died for sins once for all. You know, people live and die all the time. 
In the days of Jesus, it was no different. People live and die all the time, no significance to their death whatsoever. Just, you know, they, well, maybe they got old or, you know, fell down someplace, but no real significance to the death. When a king died, it did have some significance, right? There was maybe an end of an era. When someone was struck down by God, there was some significance in that death when Uzzah held up the ark and God struck him immediately. It was a pronouncement of God's displeasure and sin. That was the significance of that death. And the sons of Korah, when the earth swallowed him up, it says, I don't, um, I don't handle rebellion. I don't tolerate rebellion against me. Nadab and Abihu offering strange incense on the altar. Fire come down from heaven, consume these guys. It was a statement. It was a purpose. It was something that signified something. But usually a death didn't mean anything at all. On the contrary, the death of Jesus meant something. He died. It was an atoning death. He died for sins. And in that sense, it is interesting. The death of Christ is like like animal deaths. You think about how many animals died at the time of Christ. Many, 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 many animals were slaughtered all the time. And most of the time, the death of an animal didn't mean anything. The animal simply slaughtered for food. Hey, we're going to have lamb today. We slaughter the lamb and chop it up and eat it. Uh, the prodigal son comes home. Hey, let's kill the fattened calf. You know, say so slaughter the calf. It doesn't mean anything. It just means you're going to have food. But there were some times when the death of an animal had significance. Had significance if the animal was brought to the temple by a worshiper and handed over to a priest. And sins were confessed at that time. And when the priest took that animal, this animal had significance when the priest laid his hand upon the head of the animal confessing the sins to God. That had significance. It had significance when the priest took that animal and slit its throat, drained its blood, and threw it on the altar and burned it for a, self, for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That animal, that death had significance. And so also with the death of Christ. The death of Christ had significance because it was saying something to the world. It was saying something to God. This was an atoning death. It was a death to secure forgiveness of sins. Now, throughout the Bible, the significance of the death of Christ is attached with sins. Let's think about Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Our griefs were on Him when He died. Our, our sorrows were on Him when He died. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. When Christ was pierced, that sword, it was, it was for our transgressions. There was significant significance in that death. He was crushed for our iniquities. In the crushing of Him, it was specifically because for our iniquities. Significance in the death. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. There is significance in the death of Christ. We see transgressions, iniquities falling on Him. His death for our sins. The New Testament Picks us up often. I'll just give you a few verses. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died for sins. He died for our sins. Galatians 1.4 Christ gave Himself for our sins. It's alluding to a sacrifice. Hebrews 10.12 Christ has offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. A sacrifice for sins. And then lastly, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. 
the death of Christ is significant. It's the heart of Christianity. The, the cross symbolizes a significance to a death. The death was for sins. But it gets better than that. It's my fourth point. Not only is a, did Christ suffer and die for sins, He also suffered and died for sinners. Again, you might say, hey, I'm talking about the same thing. But there is something here that gives us hint to that. The difference between dying for sins and dying for sinners is that the previous point is more general, but the second point, dying for sinners, is more personal. See, it's not merely sins in general that Jesus died for. He died for specific sins committed by specific people. And so doing, you can say that Jesus died for people, or you can say Jesus died for sinners. I trust you can see that in the text, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. There he is, dying for the unjust, dying for the sinners. Your translation might use different words. I prefer the righteous for the unrighteous. Makes it more clear. You can say the, the holy for the unholy, the godly for the ungodly. This is the idea of substitution, Christ dying in our place. Rather than us receiving the brunt of God's wrath, the brunt of God's wrath fell upon Jesus. He was our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, you don't see it in your English text here, but it's clear in the Greek, the difference between singular and plural. He died for sins once for all, the just singular for the unjust plural. One died for many. One died for many unjust sinners. And this whole concept of substitution... Dying in our place is, is like all throughout the Scriptures. When I said earlier that I could give you some verses to talk about Christ dying for our sins, for every one verse that that is, I can give you about five others that says Christ died for us or Christ died for people, died for me. I can give you that kind of expressions. First John, like For instance, John 10, 11. I'm the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the... Sheep. The emphasis isn't so much that he laid down his life for what the people had done. He's laying down his life for the people. And the sin is implied. But, but the way it's expressed there is specifically to people. Ephesians 5.2 Christ gave Himself up for us. Yes, it's for our sins, but the way it's communicated is it's for sinners. It's for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 Christ died for us. Titus 2.14 Christ Jesus gave Himself for us. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. It's the greatest expression of the love of God. Greater love has no one than this, than He laid down His life for His friends. That's what Christ Jesus did. He laid down His life for His friends. Thereby demonstrate His love for this. But you need to realize that we weren't always His friends. Before we came to faith in Christ, quite frankly, we were His enemies. And this shows the great love that Christ has for us. See, it's easy for you to love those who love you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is there for even the sinners do that? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive what credit is to you, even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Three times Christ says the same thing. There's no credit. There's no, no difference between you and other people if you just love those who love you. But, He says, if you love your enemies, it's a different story. 
And that's what Christ Jesus did. And He, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died for the enemies and thereby shows the great love of God. Romans 5, it's a great expression of this. For while we're still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though for, perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. There's a progression there in Romans 5, verses 6-10. through 10. It shows the extent of God's love for us. First of all, when we were helpless, Christ died for us. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. But here it is. When we were enemies of God, that's when He died for us. He died for sinners who had their fists in their air rebelling against Him. Those are the ones He died for. I just want you to let that sink in that Christ died for sinners. If you know yourself to be a sinner... And, and can feel the weight of that, that Christ died for sinners. He'd be encouraged this morning. Toby's testimony, Psalm 32, will impact you. How blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. If you know that Christ died for you and your sins are often forgiven, you are blessed and you are happy and you are joyful. That's what this point ought to do for you. Christ suffered and died for sinners. It's not because you were good that Christ died for you. He died for you when you were His enemy. Thereby showing His great love. Well, Christ suffered and died as an example for us. He died once for all time. He died for sins. died for sinners. Here's my next point. Point number five. He died for reconciliation. Here... We're focusing upon the last half of verse 18 where it all, all hinges, it all turns. With this word, so that. Why did He die? As an example. Why did He die for all time? Why did He die for sins? Why did He die for sinners? He died so that He might bring us to God. He died to bring us to God. Now, one of the most basic teachings of the entire Bible is our sin has caused an alienation between us and God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... They were cursed and cast away from the presence of the Lord. When the people in Noah's day sinned, God's anger burned against them and He destroyed them all away from the presence of the Lord. As Israel sinned, they continued to drift away from the Lord towards the gods of the nations. They're just away. It's a pattern of sin. Romans 1 speaks about God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They suppress the truth and the righteousness. They know about God, but they suppress it and they deny it. And, and refusing to give thanks, refusing to glorify Him, what do they do? They go in their sins, separated from God. And God says, you want to go in your sins? You just go in your sins and you suffer the consequences of your sins. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sin causes a separation between us and God. And eventually those who are there will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. As it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. See, sin separates us between us and God. You ever notice that in yourself when you're sinful? 
a little more difficult to pick up the Bible and read it. It's a little more difficult to walk righteously. It's a little more difficult to love God. Why? Because in our sin, it, it, it naturally just causes a separation between us and God. It's one of the most basic teachings of the Bible. And the, against the backdrop of that teaching comes the, the good news. Is that there's a way to restore that relationship that's been damaged in sin. It's the death of Christ. See, it's, it's the death of Christ that removes the sin, that removes the impediment that allows for true communion between man and God. The death of Christ was for the purpose to bring us to God, to usher us into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think about it. If you want to see the President, you don't go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C., ring on the doorbell and ask for George. Um, can I talk to George, please? That doesn't work, does it? Secret service agents will come all around you and gather you. You'll be in a prison instead. You just can't get to the president by ringing on his doorbell. You need help. You need to know somebody who has access to the inner circle of the presidency. And then he needs to pull the proper strings so you can come and see the president. Well, in a similar way, if you want to come to God, you need to know somebody who has access to the inner circle of God. You need to know somebody who's maybe sitting at his right hand and can say, Psst, hey, God. You need to have somebody who's got the, the, the credibility, who's got the credentials, and that someone is Christ. The path to reconciliation with God is Jesus. In fact, it's, it's really precise in the Bible. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. It's the only way. That's what Jesus taught. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Nobody. You want to come to me? you got to come. you got to come to the Father. you got to come through me. This is how it is. So Peter said, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. There's no other name. You name the name. It's not sufficient. There's one name. Christ has been named to bring us access to God. Paul said the same thing. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You can't get to God through any other means. It's got to come through Christ. And through the death of Christ, you have access to God so that He might bring us to God. The purpose there is is that He's going to bring us to God. He's dying so He can take us and bring us into the throne room of God to stand there pure and holy without being burned. And our access to God is incredible. I mean, it it is unbelievable if you would go and see the president, how would you address him? Mr. President, and you'd be all stiff because there's an air about him. And, and rightly so, but when we come to God, our access is so intimate through Christ that we can actually call, Dad, uh, call God our daddy. Like a little child in the arms of God, daddy. It's not Mr. God. It is Daddy. Georgie. Georgie, how you doing? Well, think about the illustration of the White House, though. It gets better than that. Not only do we have access to the president for matters of politics, but we can go to a room in the White House. We can stay and we can live. We can sleep. And, and it strikes two in the morning. Something comes to mind and says, you know what? I, I think... Mr. Bush needs to hear about that. Let me just go talk to him. And you walk, you walk down the hallway and then you... George, are you in there? Hey, I got a question for you. He pops up. And 
That's what it's like for us. Through Jesus Christ, we can come to the Father anytime we want. In fact, that was the purpose of the cross, is to give us access to God so that we can come to Him anytime we want. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anytime you need grace, anytime you need mercy, anytime you need help, just knock on the door and say, God, I need your help. That's the access we have to God through Christ. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Christ suffered and died. Sixthly, for victory. And this is the last phrase here of verse 18. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that because that's really the key to my message next week. The whole victory aspect of here. I don't know what my title of my message will be next week, but it will be something about how Christ suffered for victory or Christ was victorious in His suffering because that is the idea here. Is that He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Now, of course, we know this is He's put to death in the flesh. We see that upon the cross, dying in the flesh. But in the process of dying, He still is also then made alive in the Spirit to show that He's conquering His death. I mean, if you'd have seen the suffering and death of Christ, if you'd have looked on in Jerusalem back then, outside the camp, you'd have said, the life of Christ, perhaps, you could have said, it was a failure. I mean, look at this. Limp body, here on a cross, hanging by a few rusty nails, life gone out of Him. What sort of leader was this? He died as a, a criminal. doesn't look like victory to me. He says, oh, but it is. The one who was put to death in the flesh was made alive in the Spirit. His body may have been dead, but his spirit lived on. Absent with the body, presence of the Lord. His spirit lived on. The religious leaders thought they could stop Jesus by putting Him to death, but it's not the case. His body was dead, his spirit lived on, and Jesus then was ultimately victorious. And I think that's the big picture point of verses 19 through 22. Though it's pretty confusing, because it speaks here, verse 19, in which he went and made proclamation of spirits now in prison, whatever that means, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Alright, there's some spirits, whatever that means. During the construction of the ark, Okay, Noah, ark, which a few, that is eight persons, brought safely through the water. Okay, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay, here's why baptism saves you. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the main point of everything. Don't get lost in all the, all those little details. The main point is this, is that we're saved in baptism because that's not the physical right, but the appealing to God for a clean conscience, that's what saves you. And how is it that saves us? Through the resurrection of Christ. His body was dead, but He was made alive in the Spirit. And then later He rose from the dead bodily through the resurrection of Christ. And He is conquered. He is victorious, as verse 22 says. He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Here is Christ in heaven, ruling and reigning over all spirits, over all angels, over all authorities, over all powers. He has got the authority over all these. He has the victory. And I think that's the point here of why He died. He died for victory. The suffering and death of Christ wasn't defeat. 
And I'll just say also, in your suffering for righteousness, it's not defeat. It's victory. Indeed, it's a strange victory. Not one that's obvious at first glance. But it is a victory. And the victory is in Christ. As I finish, I want you to turn to Matthew 16. And we'll just look here. It's very interesting. We see Peter here, first time confronted with the fact that Christ would come and suffer and die. He didn't like this message. He thought this message was a terrible message. Look at Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, so this is point in time, it's the point in time when Christ revealed Himself, the Father revealed Himself to Peter that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. As soon as He revealed Himself that Christ... He, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He will build His church. Immediately, He says, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem. He must. I mean, this is necessity. This has to happen. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And I think when He says He must... Do this. I think he's probably opening the scriptures to them. Remember on the road to Emmaus, oh foolish of heart to believe in all the scriptures wrote. I think it's probably because he's explaining to them in the scriptures how it must be they must go to Jerusalem. Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter did not want the cross. Peter thought the cross was a Bad plan. But Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. The cross is God's plan. The cross is a good plan. And later in his life, Peter embraced as a good plan. That's what chapter 3, verse 18 is all about. It's a good plan. It shows how we come to God. It shows how our sins are forgiven. It gives us confidence in the day of suffering that we are suffering according to the will of God, doing what's right in suffering. Jesus suffered and died for example, for all time, for sins, for sinners, for reconciliation, for victory. Maybe you're here this morning you think, that's a bad plan. <laughs> I didn't need, don't need the suffering and death of Jesus. Steve, you can just take it for yourself. Oh, my dear friend, the only hope for you is the cross. It's the only hope for any of us. Maybe you go through the same process that Peter did. He thought it was hogwash to begin with, and then he realized, you know what? That is the way, and that is the way to rejoice in. Initially, Peter hated the cross, but eventually he came to cherish the cross. The same writer says, it's where we ought to be. I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Where my trophies at last I'll lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. <clears throat> He's talking there about cherishing the cross, which brings us to God, forgives us our sins. And see, there's victory in the cross. And someday the cross will be the means by which we get a crown. Not because of merit of our own, but simply because we believed and trusted in His work. Let's pray and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper.
Lord, I pray that this message would be a, a good transition, a good help for us to think and reflect upon what we do. We do every four to six weeks or so when we take the bread and drink the cup. We do it merely to remind ourselves once again of our dependency and trust upon the cross of Christ. We do this in remembrance of You. We do this because You've told us to, but we do it because it's helpful for us to always come back to the place where it all began for us, where our life is found, where we are hidden with God in Christ. And so I pray, Lord, this we have thought here about the cross and everything it means, about the sufferings of Jesus, about the death of Jesus. Stir our hearts afresh to greater love for Him, greater heart, greater passion for Him. Pray for those here who don't know Christ. Um, Lord, pray you convict them of sins right now and show that there's no other hope. Their life is uh, terrible apart from the cross. In the cross, there's happiness. Even as we witnessed early in our service, tears of joy Toby Mitchell shared with us of knowing how blessed one is who's been forgiven of all transgressions. So give us that joy and give us that heart. God, I pray that we would take this morning in a worthy manner. We examine ourselves. We confess our sins. God, we might not bring judgment to ourselves, but that we'd bring great glory to You. I pray, Lord, as we sing, reflect upon the Gospel, reflect upon Your deep, great love for us and coming to die for us. Simply turn our hearts and affections more and more towards You. We want more of You, less of us. God, so teach us as a church to suffer well because we follow the example of Christ. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.